Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. I don't care, that's what Ricky said. Hi, listeners to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Especially, hello, shout out to the older athletes. And I hope you enjoyed my show dedicated to uh, the older age groups, whatever you want to call that. I'd probably say anytime you get over the big 4 uh, for purposes especially of the content of this podcast, you might be considered an older athlete. So let's get into the part two of the earlier show that I did dedicated to older athletes. And part two, we'll be getting into some actual Q&A from people out there fighting the battle, trying to age gracefully, recalibrate their goals in an appropriate manner, uh, fight the inevitable decline that comes with the advancing of chronological years, but is grossly misinterpreted, I think, by society in general, just my opinion, that aging has to happen at the accelerated and disastrous rate that we see going on in present-day life. Uh, We know that organs wear out at about 120 years just from oxidative damage, from living and breathing and being healthy. So your ultimate lifespan for humans is around 120. We know that the all-time world record, Jeanne Calamant, this female from France who lived until the year 1997, was born 122 years before that. There's a great interview with her on YouTube. She survived until the YouTube era. How about that? Um, and you can search Jeanne Calmont is G-E-A-N-N-E, like Jean, and then her last name, C-A-L-M-E-N-T. There's a lot of content from her, including this beautiful two-and-a-half-minute interview uh, in French where she shows how sharp her brain is and a little spice of her personality. <laughs> oh, it's great stuff. And that was filmed when she was 119, near the end of her life. So it's possible to go to 120. We think that 80 is uh, is okay. That's the average life expectancy. Males are a little under 80, females a little over 80 in many Western nations, including the United States. Uh, But that's a big gap from 120 potential to 80 as the norm. And the norm is pretty sad these days. Uh, What is it? Over 60% of American adults are now classified as overweight or obese to the extent that it compromises their health. So two-thirds of us aren't even uh, getting out of the gate safely with what we're walking around with. Uh, Many listeners and endurance athlete enthusiasts are not in that disastrous sedentary obesity category. But nevertheless, uh, there's a lot of areas to improve when we talk about delaying that aging process, aging gracefully. And I also like to get into the psychological aspects because we know that if you lift weights and you exercise aerobically and you eat healthy foods, you'll delay the aging process. But there's also that psychological component to it. Uh, Mark wrote a great post on Mark's Daily Apple called Going Through Life with an Edge. I think that's the title, something like that. Um, There's a nice uh, anecdote from my father in there, Dr. Walter Kearns. Uh, at age 95, still going and playing golf and 
definitely the world's greatest golfer over the age of 90, bar none, a fabulous athlete throughout his entire life. And there's another story about Mark and his son, Kyle, and how they used to race on snowboards. And the one day that young Kyle finally beat his father in a snowboard race and the beautiful uh, perspective alteration that it was for Mark to say that uh, here he is pissed that he lost to his kid, but also showing that um, what what a great example he set and that competitive intensity that he harbors throughout his life. Um, I also recall one of my uh, great turning points uh, in aging gracefully was having that desire when I was coaching my son in the young age groups from uh, third grade all the way up to the start of high school. And I always called myself the MVP of the basketball team. I could dominate these kids in fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. I could go to the hoop. No one could stop me. I'd shut down the hot scorer. I could out hustle people. I could score from all over areas of the court. (laughs) And then about a year and a half later, so now they're good into high school, 10th graders, they're all taller than me, they're quicker, they're stronger, and it was to the extent that I couldn't even stay on the court with them. So I went from MVP to not bench warmer, but guy in the stands clapping for them, and it was a perfect and right thing to happen because, of course, that's what you want as a coach, to see your kids get better and get stronger and improve, and there I was uh, gracefully accepting that transition that also uh, included you know, some of the aging or some of the declining skills uh, of me getting older, but it was okay. And there's always a chance to recalibrate your goals and pursue something that's age appropriate. So that's my first admonition. And that's kind of picking up uh, the strong message from last time where I said, look, maybe, just maybe, not saying for sure, but maybe the Iron Man, the full distance, 140.6, maybe the 26.2 mile marathon, maybe those are young people's games. And maybe if we're over 50, especially, we might want to recalibrate our entire uh, view of our most passionate endurance sport, that 13.1 is the ultimate competitive distance for a runner, or that 70.3, the half Ironman race, is the ultimate competitive distance in triathlon. It's okay to do that. Even if your 5K or 10K is your ultimate uh, competitive distance, that's okay because you can always improve your speed and go faster and faster, not necessarily longer and longer and more training hours, especially as you age. It might not be in alignment with your health. Okay, with that opener, let's get into some questions. Okay, I am a competitive master's runner. What recommendations do you have for speed work? I do not want to fall into my old habits of chronic cardio with three sessions of speed work each week. Good point. Thank you for that question, giving yourself the answer before I even talk. (laughs) Yeah, uh, excessive speed work is highly destructive and counterproductive. The speed work, when you call going fast or high intensity, has a tremendous return on investment, but it also comes with high risk. So a little goes a long way, even more so when you're in the master's age groups. So if you look at the average uh, Division One college cross-country team program, uh, what kind of frequency they do of high-intensity running, what kind of tempo running they do, uh, how many m- total miles they do, all those things are going to be off the charts inappropriate for someone who's over 50, period. That's just the way it is. So we kind of look toward the elites for uh, guidance and role modeling of how to properly train for long-distance events, but I think everything should be recalibrated particularly to your age and also the overall level of stress that you have in your life. So 
Um, of course, I'm not going to give a pat recommendation like once a week with your speed workout is plenty because mainly what I want to emphasize is that commitment to periodization so that speed work is only contemplated during certain periods of the year where it's most appropriate. So that's number one. So zero speed work, <laughs> zero workouts a week is highly appropriate during the rest period and during the base building period. And then when it's time to introduce intensity, when you've built a successful aerobic base, um, you know, high quality, high intensity, and then go home is the best recommendation because you don't want to prolong the duration of the workout that will elicit the flood of stress hormones into your bloodstream that does not clear in a timely manner. In other words, you will be buzzed on endorphins. You might feel good after you go to the track and do eight quarters or what have you, but maybe four was the magic number to get that burst, to get that hormonal response, to trigger the improvement over time as you recover after the intense workout, but it's not such that it put you over the edge into stress hormone pattern. One way to gauge for this is to determine how you feel 24 hours later and 36 hours later after the high-intensity workouts. I know that in recent years, I kind of noticed a dip. It took me a while to notice it, to figure it out, but I'd have a great sprint workout, let's say on Tuesday morning, and then Wednesday afternoon, eh, wasn't feeling so good, needed to take a nap, kind of wake up, let's say Thursday morning, so that's 48 hours later, really stiff and creaky, and the hamstrings aren't working well, and the ankles and the Achilles tendons aren't feeling that good. So maybe that was uh, overdoing it for my age with the the actual sprint workout and what kind of uh, work output I did at that session, even though I felt great during the session because the stress hormones are flooding my bloodstream, I have high motivation levels, I'm focused, I'm used to this pattern of pushing my body so I can go out there and knock out a great speed workout, but it might not be as aligned with my goals uh, at, at a particular age. So uh, kind of air on the short side if you're going out there and doing high-intensity workouts and air on the less frequent side. So if you're thinking that maybe once a week will work for you, uh, stretch it out to once every seven to 10 days. As we say in the Primal Blueprint, sprinting is appropriate once every seven to 10 days. That's only three sprint workouts a month. But if you get into a good pattern where you're monitoring your energy levels, your motivation levels, and your health, and giving yourself a one through 10 score each day uh, with each one, right? What's your energy level? Eh, it's a seven or eight. What's your motivation level? Yeah, seven or eight, feeling great. Uh, what's your health, you know, nine or 10, perfect, no signs of uh, disturbed immune function, then you can go out there and deliver a seven or an eight or a nine workout, okay? But if you're kind of feeling dragging, if there's a little bit of lingering stiffness or things of that nature, unless you're, unless you're 22 years or below and you're fighting for a scholarship and you got to, you know, put in yet another workout, even though you're not perfect, but you know you can bounce back from that because you're bulletproof, Uh, that's fine. But for anybody else, I want to caution you strongly. If your body's not feeling great at rest, if your warm-up does not go exceptionally well before a sprint workout or any high-intensity session, just bag it and wait until a day where you're feeling great. I made a terrible mistake along these lines early in 2017 when I went out for my usual sprint and high jump session, feeling a little bit of lingering soreness in the glutes, Uh, I think it was because I'd done some heavy bar squats. I I say heavy bar, excuse me. Um, It's really, what is it? Uh, It's like 135 pounds. So for me, that's a heavy bar. I know, I know. What can I say? 
Uh, but anyway, I was feeling that lingering soreness in the glute hamstring area. I went out there and completed my sprint workout and my high jump session. And on the last couple of jumps, uh, possibly taking too many jumps at that individual workout also and starting it without feeling completely whole and rested and in perfect physical condition, uh, I went over the edge and I felt a pretty good strain on that last jump. And it actually took many months to resolve this uh, lingering glute and hamstring issue. But I pushed it over the edge on that single workout, uh, mainly due to starting the workout with a little bit of muscle soreness where the muscles weren't firing perfectly. And something that I ordinarily do just fine, like an explosive jump over a high jump bar, was enough to get me into the injured category. Uh, Again, number one priority for older athletes or for athletes of any age don't get injured. Okay, 53-year-old Linda says, please tell us more about glycogen storage while on a ketogenic diet. When I first went low-carb, I dropped five pounds in two days, uh, parentheses from me, that's from the reduction in inflammation and water retention from cutting out those uh, foods that were offensive to her, probably gluten sensitivity and things like that. So back to the question, my understanding is that most of this water is tied to glycogen and glycogen stores drop as you start to lose weight, or actually they drop when you uh, reduce carb intake because uh, three to four grams of water bind with every gram of carbohydrate you consume. So, Linda, if you cheat on a low-carb diet, she asks, you quickly gain weight back, presumably water weight, and then it quickly disappears. Do people in ketogenic state have much glycogen stored in the muscles? If so, how and when does it replenish? That's a good question, and we're not exactly sure about the answer, but um, apparently the ketone production in the liver uh, is independent of your muscle storage, glycogen storage level. So you can be fully uh, glycogen stored in your muscles, but if you deplete liver glycogen through fasting or carbohydrate restriction for a sustained period, you can start getting into ketosis. Um, Not necessarily an age-related question here, but good to get into nonetheless. And I'm going to reference the FASTER study, the incredible insight that the low-carb athletes were able to replenish glycogen quickly after their glycogen-depleting three-hour treadmill run that was the centerpiece of the FASTER study without consuming an appreciable amount of uh, carbohydrates after the workout. So they were able to replenish glycogen through internal means, uh, possibly from a little bit of gluconeogenesis, uh, converting amino acids into glucose and then restoring, restocking the muscles. And then secondly, being fat adapted, not depleting their glycogen down to the empty tank just from a three-hour run, but maybe depleting it halfway because they're good at sparing glycogen. That's one of the benefits of uh, the low-carbohydrate eating pattern is that you're um, very efficient with your glycogen use. Okay, let's talk to Larry, 56 years old. I have heard Maffetone say that you can't be too conservative with your heart rate. So even though I test higher, I still use the 180 minus age formula for the vast majority of my workouts. And before I even continue with Larry's question, Larry's statement, um, this concept that you test higher, I think people go into the laboratory or whoever's offering this test, uh, this metabolic function test where they identify your crossover point or your fat to carbohydrate burn ratio, all those things are fine and dandy, but they have nothing to do with 180 minus your age calculation. And as Maffetone has said many times, the 180 minus age formula 
uh, usurps over whatever you find out your particulars are in a laboratory, including your fuel substrate utilization, the percentage of carbs to fat that you use. Um, we've had Peter Defty on the show talking about this concept that as you get fat adapted, you can increase your maximum aerobic heart rate up to what they call modified maximum aerobic heart rate up to 20 beats higher. And it simply is not, um, it's not coming out right. Phil Maffetone says that 180 minus your age is it. Um, there's no call to increase that no matter how you test or no matter how well you are metabolizing fat in comparison to your former self that was addicted to sugar. You have all kinds of performance benefits from becoming fat adapted, but these are going to show up, listen carefully, these are going to show up in your ability to run faster or perform better at your maximum aerobic heart rate. So you can drop from a nine-minute pace per mile down to an eight-minute pace per mile at 180 minus your age. That's the nature and the measure of your improvement, not being able to now finally go out and train uh, at 152 instead of 142 because you cut out the carbs in your diet. So it's a completely independent um, concept. My perspective is that as we approach the absolute maximum heart rate, okay, so you have the maximum heart rate, it's not even affected by training. That's known by exercise physiology that um, it's approximately, remember the old 220 minus your age is your estimated max. So let's say it's somewhere around there and the maximum that your heart can beat in a full on sprint is let's say 200 beats per minute. So as you get closer and closer to that maximum heart rate, no matter how good you are at burning fat versus burning sugar, the stress impact of the workout is going to increase. As the stress of the workout increases, uh, the more stress hormones are produced, more lactic acid is going into the bloodstream, the muscles are getting challenged by lack of oxygen, and the stress score of the workout is higher. Um, the goal of aerobic training, of emphasizing aerobic development, is to minimize the stress impact of the workout and become better and better at burning fat. Um, you're going to get a little bit more uh, performance benefit as you come to the higher level of your maximum aerobic heart rate, but erring on the low side is absolutely fine because you're minimizing the stress while at the same time building a magnificent aerobic capacity. Another statement I've made so many times on the podcast, referencing back to my days as an elite athlete, I did the vast majority of my training at heart rates well below my maximum aerobic heart rate. Back in those days, my aerobic max was 155 beats per minute, and I do much of my bike riding in the range of 100 to 115 beats, much of my running in the range of 125, 115, 130, 135, maybe up to 140. And of course, I was in good condition. I was running at a pretty decent pace, even when I was 140, 145, 150. My maximum aerobic test came out at six minute per mile for a five mile time trial. So at a maximum aerobic heart rate, I'm dropping six minute miles. That's a tough workout. So there was no call to do that day after day after day. And yet we have recreational people who are frustrated that they're running so slow or they're into a jog walk situation when they're at maximum aerobic heart rate and looking for some excuse or some justification to elevate that heart rate further perhaps so they can enjoy the workout more or get a psychological uh, confirmation that they're working harder and becoming a better athlete. And it simply doesn't hold water. And we can get deep into the nuances and go on the uh, debate uh, chatting on Facebook, on the math group or on the primal endurance group. But this concept that 
emphasizing aerobic development at comfortable heart rates has been proven by the successes of the elite athletes in every single endurance sport for the last 60 years. So take it easy. Honor the 180 minus age formula. I don't care what your test results are of whatever test you do. Um, this is the best suggestion. So now we're going to go back to Larry's question. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Larry. So Larry says, my last test gave me a math heart rate quite a lot higher. And I'm on medications. Uh, so that would mean the reason he mentions that, knowing that the Maffetone formula wants you to adjust to a minus 10. So it's 180 minus your age, minus 10 if you're taking any kind of prescription medication due to the stressful impact that has on the body. So Larry says, my math is 114, uh, being 56 and then doing the subtraction. I've been doing workouts strictly at 114 for four months. Then I had metabolic testing. Am I burning high percentages of fat at higher heart rates because of those months training at 114? Or put another way, does that tested math heart rate climb when you train at a lower heart rate? Whew, that was a little confusing, his question. I'm not exactly sure what he means, but I think what he's getting at is what I just said when I stated that you want to adhere to the lower heart rates and track your improvement by your faster speed at the same heart rate. So focus on that rather than looking for ways to bump up your training pace. Jim, age 65, is now fat adapted, currently training for a marathon. Would it make sense to use a ketone supplement like Kegenix as fuel during endurance training and during the marathon, perhaps in conjunction with some conventional in-race carbohydrates like Gatorade or gel? Or is it best to supplement with ketone products only before the race? I currently can easily do a morning 10-mile training run on no more than a morning coffee with heavy cream, butter, teaspoon of MCT oil, and consuming nothing during the run. I will soon be ramping up my long runs while training for the marathon and would like to get my race fueling plan set. Whew, that's a pretty interesting question. And there's so much debate going on now about the best practices and best use of ketone supplements. One thing that we know for sure is that these supplements are best used in a framework of a fat-adapted athlete. So uh, considering them as a magic bullet or a hangover cure, if you have a high level of carbohydrate intake in your diet and all of a sudden ingest a ketone supplement and put up high blood levels of ketones, um, that's not going to have a measurable impact on your performance or your health. Uh, considering that, look at a packet like Kegenix. Once you burn through those ketones, you're going to be back to whatever metabolic preferences you were before consuming the supplement. So um, first goal is to become fat adapted like Jim states, and then thinking about using a ketone supplement during endurance training um, might not be a bad idea. It's very interesting. This is cutting edge stuff, and we know what you're ingesting is a clean burning fuel that generates less oxidative stress than the usual glucose burning, especially when you're performing at high intensity. Now, if you're jogging, doing that morning 10-mile training run, you're not burning up a lot of glucose as a fat-adapted athlete anyway, so consuming that ketone supplement might just give you a little boost, but it's likely that because you're running at a comfortable heart rate, you're very good just accessing and burning the stored body fat on your body um, until you run out of fuel and you notice the sensations of bonking uh, such as in a marathon or what have you. So as Zach Bitter has said on his shows and on his blog, when it comes to performing in a race, anything goes. And of course, it's an appropriate time to ingest sugar to prop up sagging blood sugar levels that come as a consequence of the effort. 
Now, what about the pairing of a ketone supplement with uh, conventional carbs like Gatorade or gel? You know what? That's above my head, man. I do not know the answer to that. That's a very interesting contemplation. I don't know what to say. I don't know if anyone's done it. Maybe we can uh, investigate that, and um, Dr. Lindsay Taylor can go deep, maybe put it out there on the chat group and see if anyone's done ketones and carbs together. I'm especially interested in pairing the slow-burning carbs like you can. That's the super starch that is uh, purported to not uh, appreciably spike blood glucose levels because it's so uh, long-chain uh, carbohydrates that burn slowly. So what about pairing that with a ketone supplement? Could that be rocket fuel? Maybe, maybe so. I don't know. Um, but anyway, when you're going for performance in a long distance race, it's a good idea to uh, try everything out in training, especially see how long you can last like Jim's doing without needing to consume extra supplemental carbohydrates. So you know you can go 10 miles with uh, a little bit of fat coming into your bloodstream in the morning through the coffee. Obviously, things are going to be different in the race when you're extending out to a marathon, and so you're always packing those gels on your person when you're out there training and noting how much you need to feel good and to continue on at the same effort as you go for two hours or three hours or four hours or what have you. And then also seeing how you feel on the ketone supplement and doing some more, uh, maybe even some A-B testing there where you try to do 15 miles on two packets of ketones versus another attempt where you do two packets of gels. That's all I can say is fool around with it. And then finally, I know I'm giving myself an out here again because I say this a lot. It's like, get in shape, (laughs) get enough sleep, cut the crap out of your diet and worry more about that and less about the particulars of your actual fuel strategy in the race. I think athletes in general obsess about their fuel strategies. They stock up on their favorite product in case they're out of stock. If they miss their aid station or they miss their special needs bag, their whole entire race is ruined and they have stories to tell when they come back home that they missed their special needs bag and their day went to hell. Um, I'm referencing a quote from the eloquent Scott Molina, the man of very few words but often very profound, and one of his um, his fueling strategy advice that he gave was um, you should get in shape. That was his first tip on nutrition, him not being a nutrition expert, but maybe in fact that was the greatest nutritional advice ever dispensed to an endurance athlete is get in shape and then, uh, you know, you'll be good. And I uh, think I reference this on the podcast or in writing how one time uh, Johnny G, the great uh, uh, creator of the spinning program, fitness celebrity and former competitor in the nonstop solo race across America bicycle race, one time he recalibrated my mentality about the importance of workout nutrition during long workouts when he asked me to uh, show him all the food that I had uh, packed for our 140-mile bicycle training ride. So I got it out of my uh, jersey pockets and showed him my peanut butter and banana sandwich and my bag of uh, little licorice bites, both black and red, and then my coconut date balls that I drive a hundred miles over to Palm Springs from where I lived in LA and would stock up on these things, the only place you could buy them. Now you find them in all the supermarkets, the rolls of date with coconut flakes on the outside. Uh, and I had all this stuff and he took everything and he threw it over a fence into the Los Angeles River and said, today we're going to ride on Cali tea, this uh, herbal tea, Uh, with green chlorella powder mixed into the tea. So he gave me a couple bottles of Cali tea and chlorella, 
the total calories were probably, let's say, 50 to 100 calories in both bottles. And we went out there and rode for six or seven or eight hours. Might have been 110 mile, might have been 140. I can't remember the loop we did. I remember where we stopped and where we threw all my stuff into the LA River. Uh, But I did just fine because I had to do just fine because I knew I wasn't getting any calories. Um, I was also showing a good level of fat adaptation due to my extreme training practices and high fitness level. It's not something you try at home if you're not uh, dietary aligned and fat adapted or you're not training at an elite level so you can bang out 100 miles and you know deplete those glycogen stores uh, but still survive and make it home in one piece. But it was a great breakthrough mentally because I realized the body's really good at going and going uh, when the mind follows and the mind believes that you can do it without needing your emergency gel that's in your shirt. Uh, Ted McDonald's story on the Primal Endurance online mastery course when we interviewed him about his uh, summit of the Inca Trail in Peru, uh, he stated that he carried along emergency carbohydrates in his waste pack, but he barely tapped into them. He took like one bite of a bar and I think was it half a gel or something over this magnificent uh, 13-hour effort where they're going for 20 miles uh, and summiting like 5,000 feet in elevation change. Uh, The Inca Trail is something that most people do in three to four days, and these guys did it in one day. And he said the psychological comfort of having that sugar available should he need it was something that allowed him to carry on uh, in that full keto-adapted, fat-adapted state and be able to perform this amazing hike uh, just burning mostly stored body fat and ketones. So good stuff. Carry the stuff along with you and experiment. And that's uh, Jim's question right there. And that seems like a good time to wrap up the show. You know what? We should do some other shows on distinct areas of interest, such as females. So go ahead and uh, visit primalendurance.fit and submit your question. You'll find the proper button to do that. And we'll gather up some stuff about females or anybody else who has some distinct interests that don't seem to be covered by the general Q&A or the general dialogue going on in the show. I know that some of these themes are hit over and over, um, but I'm just urging you to uh, honor these themes, you know, slowing down, not worrying about elevating your maximum aerobic heart rate and keeping those fresh in your mind at all times. I remember when Mark Sisson was coaching me during my career racing and we'd have these regular phone calls and we'd get into the particulars of whatever the next race coming up or whatever the workout protocols were, but we'd always kind of summarize and end with hitting those uh, recurring themes over and over, believing in myself, not comparing my training to my peers because my needs were different than them and my particulars, my ability to recover, to handle volume was drastically different from maybe the next guy that I was racing against. And so I had to maintain that inward focus and always be reminded of the importance of that. So same thing here with the podcast. Um, And I'm not trying to... uh, throw in commercials because those are starting to really annoy me on podcasts now. I don't know about you guys, but um, the commercialism and having to sit through endless uh, messages about stuff you may or may not be interested in, uh, we're kind of deciding here at Primal to uh, drift away from that. But when I encounter cool stuff or work with people that are doing great things, I figured I might mention them. One of them's Luna Sandals, and my man Barefoot Ted just sent me uh, one of his newest models and these things are really cool. They're modeled after the uh, the great Tarahumara Indians in Copper Canyon, Mexico, the world's great endurance running community that were featured in that best-selling book, Born to Run. Um, so they kind of strap up to your foot, 
and they form a constant connection with your foot. So you can actually run in these things. They're very comfortable and they get you into that barefoot experience that's so important. And then the second thing is this Nourish Balance Thrive uh, consultation that I've been going through with Chris Kelly and Dr. Tommy Wood and search for the shows uh, on this channel that I've done with both Chris and Tommy. Um, They're doing a great service. It's really comprehensive. And so if you have any concerns about your health or wanting to access a higher level of peak performance, um, check out their website at least. You can take a quiz and look at some of the parameters that they've identified uh, testing over a thousand people through the program, Nourish, Balance, Thrive. So besides the stuff we talk about on the show, um, I want to say that their recommendations for me to uh, make an effort to consume more daily calories because of my deep keto experience, my appetite has kind of been normalized to the extent that I might have been falling short at times with just getting enough total daily nutrition and calories, and especially introducing the super nutrition green smoothie in the mornings to kind of get those uh, high level, high nutrient superfoods into my body right away. I pour in the Organifi powder. They used to be a advertiser on the show, and that stuff's nice and healthy and it tastes good. So I'm getting this green smoothie every morning. I feel like I'm covering a lot of bases and feeling more stable energy levels and actually performing and recovering better thanks to going in deep with the Nourish Balance Thrive program and identifying some of the particulars in my blood, urine, stool, saliva testing that weren't ideal that I'm attacking now with supplements and with uh Uh, dietary patterns, changing them up and constantly experimenting and feeling better. So thank you for listening to the show. Send us your questions. Talk to you soon. It's your host, Brad Kearns, Primal Endurance Podcast. Hi, this is Brad Kearns to tell you about Primal Endurance Online Multimedia Educational Mastery Course. And what we have done for the past year is basically bring the book Primal Endurance to life with a series of videos and other multimedia educational material, audio, ebooks, all accessed at this online portal with everything you need to succeed in endurance training. And if you're trying to do this stuff, if you're enjoying these compelling challenges and trying not to get sick, injured, burnt out, fried, this is going to help you approach your endurance goals in a healthy, balanced manner and promote your health rather than compromise it. Get away from carbohydrate dependency and progress toward fat adaptation. It's over 120 videos, many with the experts and also many others with the step-by-step instruction of what's in the book. So if you're too busy to read or you'd like to have a more comprehensive learning experience, check out Primal Endurance online. You'll have everything you need there at primalendurance.fit.